Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Congress Two Beers In, um, the Zoom editions, uh, kind of like the, the, the trials. Um, we're very pleased you got to, to have a friend of mine, um, Aaron Zittner, who's a reporter and editor over at the Wall Street Journal, joining me, Mark Harkins, and my colleague, Matt Glassman. Um, hey, everybody. Yeah, as we try to figure out uh, some of the craziness that's going on on Capitol Hill right now. Um, I mean, I, obviously, the, the number one thing as of this is we're taping this Thursday for release on Friday. Um, the number one thing that we're seeing now on Thursday afternoon is that the Republican Party, uh, between at least the Senate GOP and the White House, can't even come together on the beginnings of a negotiation position on the next bill to try to help people um, through the economics problems that we're having with COVID. Um, I mean, what are you seeing out there, Aaron? Well, um, to set the scene, we're what? Um, roughly 100 days before the election. Yeah. Um, one of the headlines that appeared this morning was that initial unemployment claims rose for the first time in nearly four months. So the economy isn't showing that V-shaped recovery exactly that everyone was hoping for. And Congress and the White House, both parties know they need to do something on coronavirus because that's the key to reopening the economy and it's what voters are gonna look for in the election. And they're stuck, as I understand it, uh, Mitch McConnell wanted to put a bill out today. We're speaking on Thursday but has had to delay. Some of the things holding them up seem to be the president wants his payroll tax cut, which a lot of Republican senators don't even agree with. They don't think it's the best use of money, that it undermines the social service, social safety net programs that are funded by the payroll tax. There's a dispute over whether to put more money into coronavirus testing and into the CDC and a disagreement about that. There's the $600 enhanced unemployment benefit that's gonna expire and a disagreement over whether to continue that and at what rate. And then there's the question of aid to cities and states and uh, whether to uh, make up. I mean, you know, it's remarkable when you think about all the revenue streams that go into uh, cities and states that aren't performing like usual, you know, airport landing fees. And, right bond payments and, um, you know. Hotel taxes, all that yeah. credit card fees, right? So negotiations with Democrats can't really get underway until the Republicans know where they are on some of these key issues. And that's where we are right now with them trying to get on the same page. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the oddest things about it to me is that um, you have sort of this head-on collision, not just between the White House and the president, but sort of between Republican ideology and sort of election year considerations, because you typically take an incumbent party of the president and an election year and an opportunity to juice the economy by spending at a deficit. And anybody's going to jump at that. Um, you would think in a vacuum that an incumbent party that had sort of the opposition party dying to spend money in election year would be open arms. Be like, Let's do it. Let's spend on this, that and everything through a combination of uh, unfunded tax cuts and, and spending priorities. But you really see sort of Republican ideology running up against this right now um, in a way that frankly surprises me. 
Um, you know, if you, if you were simply trying to do everything you could to help juice the economy and win the election, it seems like you'd want to spend as much as possible. But you really see that running up against uh, a Republican uh, ideology that, for better or worse, has been uh, somewhat hostile to things like expanded unemployment benefits uh, and um, at least rhetorically to large deficit spending on domestic, uh, on domestic um, priorities. And, and you really see that in play. And the other thing is just the complete absence of reality coming from Trump himself. Uh, this is the, it's the same story over and over again where, you know, he has sort of his chief negotiators in Mnuchin and Meadows who are going and trying to actually cut actual deals. But then out in public, he's still talking about things that are just complete non-starters, like payroll tax cuts and infrastructure projects and entertainment expense deductions that really aren't even popular among Republicans. Um, and that, that's really tough. Uh, you know, if you had any sort of semblance of quality leadership coming from the top in the White House, I think it'd be a lot easier to coordinate everyone on board. Um, but this is sort of how Trump does it. He either gets out of the way and lets the legislative leaders handle it, or he just causes problems publicly uh, and doesn't let them coordinate how they'd like to. Um, and so I, I, they have a mess in their hands. And, and I, I don't know how I, the payroll tax cut, evidently Mnuchin just said a couple hours ago that that's toast. Um, which is surprising to almost nobody. It just hasn't been popular among any of the Republicans, never mind the Democrats. Um, and, uh, and so we'll see. And I think what it does is this puts McConnell in a tougher bargaining spot against the Democrats. Democrats have been sitting there with a bill for a while now uh, that's triple the size of what McConnell says he was in favor of um, and totally different in sort of its orientation. And uh, they're likely to get more than they otherwise would if the Republicans could coordinate under sort of some sort of leadership. And with Matt, as a, uh, as a neutral and objective reporter for a neutral and objective newspaper, I just need to go on record saying that um, I um, uh, uh, will leave it as your opinion to characterize the quality of the president's leadership oh, yeah. and your opinion of it. And I'll just say the, oh, president's, yeah. the president's ideas don't seem to be winning the day with him. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I, I, it's <laughs> well, not so much... It's not so much a question of the quality of the leadership, it's a question of the outcome of, of, of the influence. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's hard to see that the White House is having much influence on the proceedings, given that they're not suggesting much and everything they do suggest just sorts of witters away. I mean, I, it's part and parcel of sort of the veto threat on the NDAA yesterday, or was that Tuesday? I just, you know, they, they, they're sort of running in a parallel universe um, at times that doesn't seem to be sort of in the mix on the Hill in a way that's quite shocking um, because, uh, you know, it's not, not a partisan thing. It's a, it's a Trump thing. They just don't seem to have a lot of influence right now, or they're just misplaced priorities. They're just taking but, up fights they can't win. But it's also partially, I think, a staffing thing, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't have anybody in the lead shop anymore. I mean, Eric Ulan left a couple mm -hmm. months ago. I think that they are very thinly staffed in most of the areas where you would get that kind of good advice, you get that good background about, you know, understanding what is the, the ethos of the Hill right now to some of these ideas. I think Trump, as he has been doing all along, is, is trusting his gut, right? And, yeah. you know, he has put out probably his strongest member of his cabinet to try to lead this. I mean, Mnuchin is probably the guy who's the strongest guy um, as far as on these economic issues, the one who's been trusted the most. Even in areas where you wouldn't expect him to be the leader, you'd expect maybe the head of OMB to be the leader or someplace else. Mnuchin's been the guy who's been out there. Um, and then you've got Meadows kind of trailing along and it's, 
this member of Congress, right, who should understand all of these things. But you have to remember, he's a member of Congress who was head of kind of the upstarts of the Republican Party. Yeah. He was head of the, the Tea Party-ish type wing um, of the Republican Party. And so his knowledge base of the Senate isn't super strong. Yeah. Um, so that's been, I mean, McConnell must be just pulling his hair out having to deal with what he seems to be somewhat amateur hour um, on politics and knowing, as Schumer has come out and said, you know, these guys can't get their acts together even to bring something to us to, to counter with, for goodness sakes. One, one part of this that um, has interested me uh, is this uh, enhanced unemployment benefit that went in temporarily and is about to expire. I was just out um, in the world, which I don't do enough of, but I had the good fortune to be asked to go out to Wisconsin. And they have an interesting situation there, which kind of speaks to the collision of Republican um, interests and policies. Uh, I was you know, not far from Madison in a place called the Wisconsin Dells, which calls itself the water park capital of the world. There's Noah's Ark Water Park and the Kalahari Water Park and the, the Mount Olympus Resort. And this place draws you know, 4 million or so visitors a year. And it relies on a lot of seasonal labor, which isn't there this year because the president has shut down the visa that brings in a lot of college kids and younger people to come in, the J-1 visa. And this place will hire thousands of people at say $10 an hour to work in the water parks and uh, help in the kitchens and do the, the housekeeping services in the, in the, the hotel uh, parts of these resorts. So they need labor. And now with these $600 added benefits, uh, they say, and I hear it in a lot of places, that it's really hard to get people to come in and come into the workforce when you can stay home and get these added unemployment benefits. And that's a talking point that we hear in Washington a lot. We're rewarding non-work by beefing up uh, benefits. But, uh, you know, to go to a place and see these businesses that they would open themselves to more visitors and do more business if they had the labor to run these places well. And now with coronavirus, they need extra labor because they have crews coming in and sanitizing everything all the time. Um, it seemed like a really interesting um, collision. And it's, you know, you, we can say, gee, they should be paying higher wages to begin with to pull people into the workforce. And some of them have raised their wage scales, but they've raised them from, you know, $10 to $12 an hour. And I don't want to sneeze at a $12 an hour job. It's a very good job for someone. But, um, it's, it, it's, it isn't quite enough to pull people into the workforce. And I think that's one reason why you do see Republican senators in particular, Republican House members in particular saying, maybe we don't want to continue these enhanced benefits at the same rate. So was, was coronavirus not an issue out in Wisconsin as far as trying, as, as keeping people locked down or masked up a lot? Yes. So this takes us away from um, PPP, the, the new coronavirus bill, except that it, it's a predicate to reopening the economy. But Wisconsin is, is unique and, and is a really interesting laboratory for thinking about how voters are, are you know, absorbing this moment. There's a Democratic governor, Tony Evers, who passed, like a lot of the early governors who acted early, um, a, a shelter at home 
uh, requirement that uh, limited business activity and um, required people to stay at home. The Republican-led legislature filed to block the stay-at-home rule. And the Supreme Court, after the rule was in effect for, I think, about eight weeks, sided with the legislature and threw the rule out and said the governor had overstepped his authority. So now, having had a set of regulations that are akin to many other states in that region, the, the Wisconsin has no rules. There's no kind of controlling legal authority. In the absence of the state saying what the rules are, different counties have had to figure out what they think the rules should be. Some have said, well, we have the authority to require masks. We have the authority to limit business activity, and they've been sued. So most counties are saying, we're going to go with guidelines and expectations, but they don't have the force of law. Uh, and it's just a very unique situation, and, and it really is leaving businesses, and I'm talking about chambers of commerce, downtown business districts, in the Dells, the association that all the water parks belong to, to kind of figure out rules for themselves and try to sign on jointly to rules. And in some cases, there's too much disagreement to make those rules uniform. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see how it all locks together because remember back in March, so I think there's a lot of conservatives who may not have been thrilled with the unemployment benefits, but it sort of fit together with the state politics. If you're going to be closing down businesses, forcing people not to be allowed to open their business, then it makes sense to sort of tie them over during the way. But now if you're taking kind of a conservative line that we need to reopen the economy, we need to allow these businesses to operate, then all of a sudden the sort of quite generous unemployment benefits at the federal level start to look more like a drag than a help. And at, at any rate, they don't sort of fit in ideologically um, with what you're trying to do and certainly not with sort of uh, traditional market principles there. And so you can see kind of the whipsaw that congressmen, uh, conservative House members might be stuck in if they no longer believe you need to be in a lockdown. And, and quite on the other side, you can see Democrats who would prefer that in many cases that the lockdowns be sort of reinstituted in some places, seeing even more reason than for the, the extended unemployment benefits, simply because if the state government's telling people you cannot work, uh, then it's almost a no-brainer, at least from their point of view. It's very hard to come up with the rules that everyone sees as fair, because yep. in, in Wisconsin, and I also saw this when I was reporting in uh, the Midwest in, in you know, Nebraska, for instance, they allow the big box stores to remain open to sell essential, essential items. And uh, so I have a salon owner say to me, hey, I run this small salon. Salons, there's no nest eggs here. We, we, we need income. Um, a lot of people in my industry live paycheck to paycheck. Why is it okay for you to take your five kids and go over to Walmart, but not come in here Walmart is a high traffic, high density business model. Whereas here I have one person at a time and I control 100% of my space here. I know every square inch in my space and I follow sanitary rules. And she's wearing a mask. She's not saying I refuse to wear a mask. She's saying, How, who are you to determine what's essential? And I had a to toy store owner who was a democratic voter say, why can the place next to me hand a hamburger out through curbside delivery, but I can't hand a toy soldier out through curbside delivery. So, um, you know, the kind of debates that I heard here in Washington um, really are felt on the ground there and really do 
matter to people who are trying to run small businesses and don't have a lot of cushion um, in their lives. And this has a huge impact coming up into the elections, right? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, this is what's going to drive the election, whether the economy's going. And then does the health matter more than the economy? It's very strange. That's like such an interesting uh, a question. And, and I have to wonder from my objective um, non-political standpoint of whether the president is really reading the moment right. You know, we work on the Wall Street Journal. I'm part of the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll. And we ask, you know, essentially, what's more important to you? What do you want to see more? A candidate who pushes to open the economy or a candidate who worries more about public health at the expense of the economy? Or we've asked, President Trump is pushing to reopen the economy. Does he have the balance right between economy and public health? And pretty consistently, very consistently, people are saying public health over reopening. And that makes me wonder whether a candidate who pushes on the gas on the economy, which is what you traditionally want and where Matt started, why wouldn't you back stimulus? Why wouldn't you want to goose the economy? A candidate who pushes on the gas too much is, could be driving himself backwards because people, there are a number of people, maybe a majority of people who are willing to take the economic hit in order to get the public safety. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing in and out, right? I mean, Matt, you and I, and, and Aaron, you as well, um, all of our school systems are now announcing online only, right? Until January. This is yeah. not a huge surprise to any of us. Any of us who are thoughtful about this knew this, but this is a huge drag on the economy. However, from my point of view, I think it's the right answer. And yes, I know it's difficult, especially if you have younger kids like you do that. Um, I know it's difficult. Um, yeah, I would just observe that in our last poll, which, which came out about a week ago, President Trump hit an all-time high in his time as president in our poll for handling of the economy. 54% approved of his handling of the economy. The previous high was 53. So margin of error difference. But he still retains that. And yet, his deficit against Biden widened in our poll from seven points to 11, and his handling of coronavirus sunk to 37%, which was down six from the prior month and down eight from the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. So yeah, he's still seen as the guy who can fix the economy, but that used to be a superpower in politics and it just isn't right now. And I just find it interesting that more people in our, you know, he retained the advantage as a good steward of the economy, and yet he his margin against Biden deteriorated. Yeah, and this this sort of uh, is a is is a tangent, sort of a bigger political science question over the last ten to fifteen years, which is sort of the par partisan polarization and the decoupling of the president's approval rating from economic conditions. Uh, if you look from the post-war era right through the early two thousands in the Bush presidency it's a pretty good correlation between presidential approval rating and economic well-being as measured by GDP growth and unemployment and things like that, such that you could use really GDP growth and unemployment to predict uh, the president's vote share and incumbent president's vote share pretty well. That started to change in the last 10 years. Uh, first with Obama, uh, where his approval sort of decoupled from the economy, and then radically so with Trump. Now, for the first three years of Trump, we were talking about how 
his low approval rating uh, was wild, given how good the economy was, relatively speaking. The only other example we had of that in the post-war era was sort of LBJ in 68, where the president's approval was sort of decoupled from, from, from the, the economy on the ground. Uh, now with Trump, it's sort of the opposite question. Um, does a bad economy hurt as much as it would a typical president, say Bush in 92 or Bush in, in, in 08, you know, his party? And again, we don't know the answer to that because of, we aren't really sure of how the effects of sort of partisanship have, you know, now decoupled these things. And so it's an open question. Uh, normally, you know, absent coronavirus in an economy that's bad, you say the president sunk. On the other hand, normally six months ago with the economy that it was, you say the president's a shoo-in for re-election. And it hasn't been the case either. And so, uh, you know, it's not, and again, this is not just a Trump thing. This is something that was happening under Obama too, where we were less and less of a correlation between economic uh, health and, and the president's approval rating. And so, you know, the 2020 election is, you know, obviously uh, important in a lot of ways, but from a analytic standpoint and from a strategic politics standpoint, uh, it's an open question to how much the economy, which used to be paramount to sort of the re-election of the president, um, whether that has sort of attenuated somewhat. And to, to your point, look what's going on right now. It's, a, it's in some ways an echo of the midterms. In the midterms, Trump had a great economy to run on. And what did we talk about? We talked about the caravan. And I'll leave it to you guys to interpret why the president went to the caravan. Now, we have a difficult economy. Um, and the president does but spend some time market. trying to persuade. I'm sorry? But a great stock market. Great stock market. The president is spending time trying to persuade us that he, he um, has the skills to bring the economy back. But what are we talking about now? We're talking about Portland and uh, federal troops in Chicago and um, if, if to, to Matt's point, if the economy were as important a driver now as it has been, we think, historically of the vote, um, why isn't it that the president isn't putting more of his um, uh, public presence into talking about the economy? Yeah. I, you know, the interesting thing with Trump is that, you know, it's not clear that even four months ago before coronavirus became sort of the focal point of the year and the election that he was intending to run sort of a traditional incumbent re-election campaign it, it seemed like the pieces were all laid out for him to try to run sort of a peace and prosperity and things are going well and i'm the incumbent so vote for me type campaign and he didn't seem particularly comfortable with that um his sort of skill set uh is much more um uh, much more aligned with sort of identifying problems uh, that he can fix and sort of coming at it in, in sort of a negative light. He wants to make America great again. And he had been running on sort of a keep America great uh, headline banner, but it does seem that he's more interested in talking about sort of external threats, be it from China or other countries or immigrants or law and order type issues, regardless of what sort of the situation suggests you might want to do. Now, when things were going well, obviously peace and prosperity is a good message for an incumbent. And when things aren't going so well, you kind of try to find something else. And I thought, I thought the crisis was a great opportunity for him, the COVID crisis. This is a spot where, you know, leaders can really sew up their reelection if, if they put on a performance that is deemed competent, regardless of whether it's particularly successful. And you can see that in various governors, be it Cuomo or DeWine or DeSantis or Abbott or anyone who typically have gotten good marks despite a variety of sort of outcomes in their states but trump hasn't seen to be able to capitalize on that and so yes now he has sort of shifted back to sort of traditional trump play which is sort of this law and order play be it about immigration or about 
uh, sort of protester violence in Portland. And, and this puts Republicans in the Congress in a very ticklish spot, right? Because they have to figure out whether they want to continue to be aligned with this type of, of campaigning or this type of, of, of decision-making or whether they're going to divorce themselves from it. I mean, you look in Maine or Arizona, North Carolina, right? These are races for the Senate, which could help determine the balance of the Senate going next. And these member, these senators have to decide, am I going to really wrap myself in Trump? And I think if you look at North Carolina in particular, Tillis really has said, hey, I'm all, I'm all Trump all the time. Um, and it's unclear what the polling is going to play out in North Carolina for Trump. Um, you've got a, a, and Matt, to your point, that's another state where, you know, they're having high infection rates right now, but yet the governor is still getting good marks, in this case, a Democratic governor. Um, that's hard for Tillis. If Trump's not doing well at the top and the Republican gubernatorial candidate's not doing well at the bottom, it's going to be hard for Tillis to, to find a way to get votes down there. And so they've got to, at some point, you got to fish or cut bait. And yeah. it, it's going to be... But Right now, we may be seeing that with the, the legislation on PPP. Yeah, and, you know, executives have to do this quicker than sort of legislators. And you can see that, you know, governors just have to respond to conditions on the ground, and they have to be pragmatic, and they have to be less ideological. And so you, said, you kind of saw sort of as the second wave, so-called second wave of the, uh, of the crisis sort of hit these southern Republican states, the governors sort of distanced themselves from sort of the the sort of strident rhetoric that you kind of get in Washington or with President Trump during all this. And they started just taking actions uh, with the exception of maybe Kemp in Georgia who seemed to have stuck very much on sort of a Trump course. And sort of the, that kind of pulled the president along with them eventually. I, you know, in his news conference on, was it Monday? He seemed to be striking a much more pragmatic tone uh, or at least trying to about the virus. But legislators don't have to do that because they don't have to make those sort of on the ground executive decisions. And so they have more time to wait. They can see it more sort of purely through a campaign lens. When do I sort of separate myself but it's an open question i mean if you remember in 2016 you had like um uh, speaker ryan or yeah Boehner and ryan sort of releasing uh uh releasing members to kind of go their own way and distance themselves from trump and you could see mcconnell getting to that point too or already having privately gotten to that point with senators like you gotta save yourself and uh, oh. you know, I, yeah part of the challenge is uh the trump campaign has been transparent about their strategy. I mean, they held a briefing in December or January, and they essentially said, we're going to try to get more of the people who are already inclined to vote for us. And they said specifically, they want to go into Pennsylvania and focus on the 45 smallest counties that together account for about 22% of the vote. And they'll go into Wisconsin and go after the 48 smallest counties. 46 or 48. But in any event, when you say that, you're talking about going after counties that are largely white and are going to be more non-college than, than the state as a whole. So you're going after more of the Trump base. And these are people who you know, didn't vote before. You're trying to not only maintain your margins in these counties, but bring more people out. And to do that, the president apparently thinks you have to talk in a loud voice. You really need to add emotion and energy into the election environment to get these people who might be inclined to vote for you, but hadn't come out before, they didn't come out in the Clinton 
Trump year to get them to come out this time. And there isn't a Senate race in Pennsylvania and there isn't a Senate race in Wisconsin, right. which means that, you know, Tillis and uh, Cory Gardner and McSally, who, um, depending on their state, are in places where the blue collar white electorate might not be as important, are left with a president who's kind of talking very loudly to his base and risks alienating others in the process. And if you're McSally, I don't know how your internal numbers to build a winning coalition and meet your vote targets work with, you know, whatever the president does has some push um, as well as some pull. And in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton also had some push away from her as well as some pull in. And, and we saw how the push and pull around these two candidates um, left, left, you know, Trump with the advantage. But um, how does, how does a, a, a Cory Gardner, how does a uh, Steve Daines uh, operate in an environment where the president's strategy is to go right at the base very well? And you had a chance recently to spend a little bit of time on the Hill, right? Doing some reporting. What was that like? I did. Uh, this was about three weeks ago now, but I think it's the same now. But very interesting. If you work on the Hill, I, I think you would, you would find the, the environment there really shockingly kind of spooky, creepy, empty. Um, all the media organizations have agreed essentially to have one reporter up there for social distancing purposes. And a lot of them don't have any reporters up there. And the media, which is pretty collaborative up there, is more collaborative than I've ever seen. So they're all using an app called Otter, which one of the benefits of working up there was being introduced to this, this huh. app, which it records like your regular iPhone voice recorder, but also Transcribes. puts yeah. a transcript out immediately. So reporters will grab lawmakers voice record them on Otter and then share those recordings very widely with a pool. And then people who are at home, because just about everyone's at home and only a few are on the Hill, will transcribe the Otter recording and send it around. And it's very collaborative. But to be up there, I mean, senators outnumber reporters like four to one. And I happened to be there the day the House was debating the George Floyd policing bill. Um, Reporters don't usually sit in the gallery, but I was the only person who wasn't a staff member in the gallery, and there were maybe three other reporters hanging around, and it was kind of like, oh, what would it be like? It was kind of like being in the locker room of a sports team when there's no one around. I mean, all the House members were there, but, you know, um, they were left to their own, and they were talking very freely, and... Uh, there's a certain lightness to the mood. God, a staffer's worst nightmare. Awesome, <laughs> press with nobody around to control them. Ah, it was a lot of fun to be there, and I, I hope <laughs> I get the chance to do it again. Just because um, uh, there was a certain uh, ease of conversation and light lightness to the mood, despite the fact that whenever anyone spoke at a microphone, they would immediately wipe it down, and most people were in fact wearing masks. That's wild. That that especially. I mean, you can you don't have to go back a few months. I guess obviously till before March, when you had these huge scrums of reporters around members, whenever they could be talking about something. 
and what was it? It was was it Richard Burr who at some point was riding in the the car with um, with uh, who's the chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate now? Um, oh, I just lost his name. Come on, guys. It's not Grassley. Grassley, right? Huh? No, who's chairman of Senate Probes right now? Shelby. 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 So it's like, so Burr was is chair of Intel. Shelby's chair of appropriations. I guess this was probably made back in December of last year. You had all these reporters and they were trying to get on Burr because of all the stuff going on with the Russian investigations. And Burr goes, Shelby's got news, right? Because they hadn't figured out the appropriation stuff yet. And Shelby goes wandering off and this scrum of like 20 or 30 reporters follows Shelby. Shelby had no news, but Burr snuck up the escalator and got away from all of these guys. But it wasn't that long ago that, the, that you had these huge scrums of reporters where even during impeachment, if I remember correctly, the police were limiting where the reporters could actually stand because there were so many of them. Well, this, is, this has been an issue the entire 115th and 116th Congress. Um, ever since Trump's election, there's been a lot more media in general on the Hill. Uh, and there's been a lot more complaints from members about not being able to maneuver around the hill uh, because of all the media. And you've had attempts at limiting sort of the access points of the media um, and where they can sort of corral and things like that. And then obviously in impeachment, you know, you, they lit the reporters on fire with anger when they were starting to try to restrict where they could go in the Senate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, coming, you know, it's one of those institutional breakpoints where it wouldn't shock me if coming out of COVID, there's a renegotiation of sort of a general um, media presence on the Hill, because it is one of the most open reporting environments you can imagine on Capitol Hill. And, uh, and I know a lot of members, had, particularly in the House, are starting to get frustrated with the number of reporters hanging out in the tunnels and just the inability to go anywhere without being you know, surrounded in a scrum. Oh, the Pentagon, I think, is like, I don't know every building in Washington, but you can't walk, you can walk pretty freely through the Pentagon and you can walk into the office of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but most most buildings that reporters in past decades just could roam, you're not allowed to, to do that anymore. And Congress, Congress remains one that you can, and there might even be some benefit to uh, limiting reporting if it does this. I mean, having a good conversation with a member of Congress is almost always educational. Every member of Congress has a story that he or she tells himself about why they're here and what their goals are. And if you can listen to that story and hear what they're saying, you, you get a better understanding of the person and the institution, but it's hard to do that um, when there's a big scrum around someone and they're just feeling physically put upon. Yeah, we keep bringing in 60 to 100 new members every two years too. It's hard for you guys to keep up yeah. with all the new folks. because and, and now we're finding that the new folks have more and more power. Yeah. You look at the Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, that's, there's, she's, she's moving, she's moving messages um, as a freshman member. And so you have to, you have to keep track of these freshmen too. So what's the likelihood we're going to get any more legislation done? I mean, I'm looking at the house is trying to pass appropriations bills. Yay team. Um, did you note the one that they're not going to pass through? Matt, your old favorite. Ledge? Ledge. And the, the two omnibuses, they're doing a four-bill omnibus, I think, or a three-bill And a seven-bill, yeah. Well, I, it remains to be seen if they're going to have DHS in that omnibus. There's a lot 
of kicking and screaming from the Progressive Caucus now. Um, I, can they be rolled? Sure. Will they be? I don't know. Um, but yeah, no. I what, what's the holdup on Ledge? I don't even know, so but the, I'm guessing the I'm House Ledge bill looks great. Member pay? I don't know. It's got to be member pay. They're trying to get a pay raise through, and they're just worried someone's going to block it in the MTR or just in an amendment. Yeah, and so my they'll they vote down the rule if they'll vote down the rule if it doesn't block it. Um, yeah, it's always plausible. Um, because there's yeah, nothing else no, really that's controversial in ledge branch that I can think of right no, now. No, it has a big in, it has a big increase in the House bill this year, but it's mostly you know re, it's mostly really good stuff. It's actually you know it's actually the biggest increase in the ledge bill since I was. So that was working it before the before the um, you know great recession. So it, it I mean obviously the Senate has its say too, but the Senate doesn't really have its say about House only items. So right. you can get it through the House, you basically got it. Um, so I, I I didn't realize there was a floor hold, but I hadn't looked at those omnibuses carefully. I kind of just assumed Ledge was in it. I, you know, so I don't I don't think it matters because I don't think I don't think we're doing any appropriations before the election. Right. Um, I, I I don't think there's any chance Trump is actually vetoing the NDAA. So I think that'll happen, and I think the COVID bill will happen, and those are the last two trains out. I can't imagine another one really. You, you um, think the COVID bill will actually happen? That's I do. I, mean, I, I do. I do. I I I cannot I cannot imagine the Senate R's up for re-election want to. I mean, I don't know if they'll get it. I don't know if they'll get it before they leave in August or before they break, but man, how could you go home to campaign? How could Gardner go home or McSally go home or Collins go home with nothing right now? It just seems like a disaster for them. Um, that doesn't mean it won't happen. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean it won't happen. Right. But I feel like, I feel like there's a majority in the Senate absolutely to get a deal done. Um, now, does that mean Schumer doesn't have a lot of leverage and maybe the Democrats want a campaign item more than they want a policy it's it's happened before right like you can imagine it but that's the tricky needle to thread too um and so my guess is there's a coalition for something but getting from here to there obviously is not easy i think the tension's only going to rise closer to mm. election day as school school approaches i mean it's not just parents um how many teachers do we have in this country and how many of them are thinking gee do I really want to go back and can I go back? And then all these parents thinking my county is going online only. How am I going to deal with this? Um, I think the environment could get more tense, uncertain, and, and I'm happy closer to election day. And uh, I don't know how Cory Gardner goes home without having something to say about what he did to, to resolve or at least mitigate. Hey, but he's the conservation, the wilderness bill. Come on now. That, that's a huge win. As long yeah. as he doesn't have to vote on confirmation for a uh, Secretary of Interior who wanted to get rid of public lands. Oh, yeah, that's happening. Trump nominated a guy who's basically, and, 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 and put the nomination forward. It's going to force these Republicans, Danes and Gardner, to have to vote on this guy. Um, and we have a Fed nominee coming up, too. Yeah. That's going to be fascinating. Who, who thinks the Federal Reserve is doing too much, right? Yeah. It's funny that, that Trump was so expert for so long at jamming the bandwidth and filling the bandwidth with what he wanted to talk about. Now, is does the nation have any bandwidth to talk about anything other than coronavirus? Mm -hmm. Is that... 
can any message break through right now beyond um, is my is my elderly parent going to get sick and um, is my kid going to go to school and as we get closer and closer to the election that's i mean that's trump's only hope is that the message can break through his message on biden once he settles on it yeah i yeah i it, it is odd because it's nearing the end of july and in you know it seems like the election's far away but then you think about a normal year where we'd be into sort of convention season and this is it um and the absence of sort of the large rallies and the oxygen for campaign events to be sort of dominating the news coverage kind of lulls you that like this election is not far away anymore um and obviously campaigns can still have effects and a lot of events can still have effects but there's less and less time um for the you know the trump team to sort of shift the playing field and, and reorient themselves into a, into a strategy that uh, lets them talk about stuff they want to talk about. And they may not have a place to have a convention, right? I mean, the, the sheriff and, and Jacksonville has said, I can't protect this. Yeah. The whole yeah. question of what these conventions are I, in a way, I'm, I'm sorry about it because a convention is a scripted TV show. I mean, it's every, Every second that you see, theoretically, should be ironed down and nailed down in advance. There should be no surprises at a convention. And yet we get these great moments, like Clint Eastwood and yeah. the empty chair yeah. in 2012. We'll call or, that great. We'll call that great. Or Ted Cruz. That was great theater, uh, political theater. Or Ted Cruz declining to endorse Trump and getting booed in uh, 2016 or oh i don't Clinton know going back. on and on and on in 88 in 88 and go back to 72 i think we're before our time but um wasn't the acceptance speech mcgovern's acceptance speech in 3 a.m because the party yeah. couldn't get its business done how how can we have any of those great can there be any chance for a great mishap or a moment of of uh, unexpectedness or serendipity um if they're just so muted. There are these speeches before small rooms. And, yeah. um, and, if, and if the convention itself becomes sort of a mixed story, if the whole point of this for a party is to have sort of a week-long infomercial dominating sort of the press coverage, does that really work when half the press coverage is whether you should be having this event at all and who's going and who's not going and who's not yeah. there and let's go interview them in L.A. or, you know, wherever. And so I, it's not clear to me the parties even want to make their convention sort of the traditional spectacles right now, yeah. uh, given the situation. It might be strategically a bad move on their part. Now, I, that, that sort of cuts against sort of not only Trump's skill set, but I think his intuition about, uh, about, about politics, that he needs to be out there um, larger than life. And again, I do think that is sort of a convention is sort of his skill set, um, because I do think he does have a communication style and instinct that really that really is helpful to him electorally and so i do think it harms him not to be able to campaign in a normal way uh and my guess is that it's driving him nuts at the white house too um it so would be interesting to hear his his speech in at, in the 2016 convention and then again at his inauguration he gave very dark speeches you know american carnage crisis in the cities um can he do that now? Can he give that same speech? He's been the president um, 
he he's supposed to have had four years to res, you know to improve the problems that he identified back then. I'm just curious what the tone of this speech will be, and how you balance um, your claim to accomplishment with the impulse that it's a dark world out there. I think it's much more likely that he'll have Flynn give a talk than he'll have any MD who thinks the coronavirus is a problem give a talk. It's, yeah. uh, there's only really one more piece of news to be made at the conventions, right? And that's Biden's announcement of who the VP is. Yeah. Outside yeah. of that, there's really no more news to be made. I mean, Matt, as you were saying, I, I think, or as Aaron, as you were saying, there's really nothing can go, can get through this anymore. We're pretty Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the other thing that, you know, you already see it sort of inklings of it in the press is whether Biden is going to roll out a laundry list of moderate Republicans to endorse him um, in, in that period. You know, it looks like Kasich, John Kasich may, may do that. Sake. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, if, if, you know, if Hogan does or other people do, I, I guess that's news too, but obviously not on the level of his VP announcement. I, I, uh, I, and so I agree. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I, you know, I, it's, it's funny because I think of Trump as someone who is pretty good on handling the media, right? This is definitely part of a skill set, but it, it also may be the case that he is sort of, he only plays one banjo string and he doesn't really have sort of the flexibility to play a different one. And so it is going to have to be sort of an American carnage speech. And, you know, you kind of see them, you kind of see him doing that a little bit right now. You see, well, look at what's going on in the streets. Do you really want more of this if Biden comes in? And it's a tough sell. It's not really sort of an incumbent's play, but, you know, maybe it is, you know, if it's, if it's your, you know, it's the only instrument you can play, you got to play it and try and try and win. All right, Matt, what time are we at? Yeah, we're at the, we're at the point where no one listens to a podcast anymore. So we better wrap it up. Uh, we can go around. Does anyone have any parting shots? Mark, you want to start? Well, I think we would be remiss to not um, at least mention the fact that an, an icon of Congress, as well as an icon of the civil rights movement, John Lewis, passed away recently. Um, he was uh, uh, he was a self-described introvert who was forced to be an extrovert, and I think that that's very true. You you didn't see him often in Congress, but I know that in my time as a staffer. Um, anytime I saw him on the House floor, I stopped whatever I was doing and turned up the TV. Uh, because no matter what it was that he was speaking about, you knew it was consequential. I mean, he was known as the conscience of Congress. Um, and uh, there are few of his ilk that are still around, if any. Um, and he will be sorely missed as we move forward trying to heal our country, however the election turns out in November. Yeah, I want to talk about Lewis too. Uh, political scientist uh, Eitan Hirsch re recently wrote a book called Politics is for Power. Uh, and the, the, the thesis of the book is that too many people forgot about how to participate in politics and that many people now are just political hobbyists. They know a lot about what's going on in Congress and they're really up on the news and they can tell you lots of things, but they just stop participating. They stop actively trying to influence public policy. And John Lewis's life is a testament to how you should participate in politics. Uh, it's not something for watching. It's something for getting yourself involved in. And that's how you make things change. Uh, Lewis is one of the few people in Congress that you can genuinely say is a hero to the Republic. Uh, this is a guy who spent his life fighting for democracy, 
not by sort of donating a little bit of money to candidates or endorsing things or writing stuff on Twitter, but by going out in the streets and organizing people uh, and making things happen. And uh, he will be sorely missed, not only as an icon, but that's sort of just a symbol walking around the Capitol of, uh, of what is possible if you participate in politics. Aaron, you got a parting shot? I never had the pleasure to meet uh, John Lewis. Uh, I would just note that we now have 52 black members of Congress, not including Eleanor Holmes Knowlton and the delegate from Virgin Islands. And that's just about the same share, about 12%, about the same share that uh, blacks make up of the US population. So maybe that's one sign of progress that he was part of. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you everybody for listening to Congress Two Beers In and we'll see if we'll catch you next time. <laughs>